I would like to welcome welcome everyone to Mines First Baptist Church tonight for our live stream. And um, you know, I would like to um, you know just to say a prayer tonight before we get started, especially uh, for those who endured some severe weather. We're even a little bit late tonight. We usually start at six, but we're seven o'clock tonight because um, because I've been in the bunker, my father's bunker, a uh, storm shelter uh, that we kind of hid away in. Um, but but uh, I know that there was uh, several who experienced some some bad weather, and we're going to pray for for their safety right now. Let's let's pray. God, my Father, I just thank you, Lord, for uh, this day. What it means, Lord, to Christians all around the world, Father. God, that we can celebrate what you have done. You've redeemed a people, God, your people. And, and God, I pray, Lord, that, that you would just continue to uh, work on us, Lord, and through us, Father, uh, so that we might um, see our, our lives, Father, as God, a living testimony to you and for you, Father. God, we love you. We love you so much, Lord. God, I also pray, Lord, for those who uh, have endured severe weather today and uh, all those that God are dealing with so much, um, to, whether it be sickness, Lord, uh, whether it be job loss, Father, uh, whether it be that they were uh, in this storm, Father, and God, I don't know if there's any injuries or deaths, Father, but we pray, Lord, that, God, that you would uh, take care of each need, Father. God, we, we love you and we thank you. We know that we can trust in you, Father. It's all in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, tonight, you know, we've been going through the covenants. The last several times that I preached, we've discussed the covenants of the Old Testament, starting with the covenant of creation, you could call it, the Adamic covenant, uh, Adam and Eve. And then continuing through the Noahic covenant and, and then followed by the Abrahamic covenant and then the Mosaic covenant. And then lastly, the last time that we got together, we talked about the Davidic covenant. And so, you know, man failed. Man failed in keeping the covenant of creation with the fall of man in the garden, uh, with the disobedience of Adam and Eve. They were cast out of the garden and out of God's presence. You know, at one time they walked with God, that, that they could interact with God in, in a, such a personal way. And, and that, but that mankind, through this act of disobedience, would be separated from God and there would, be, there would come a curse of sin, disease, and death through this act of disobedience. The world would soon grow. It would populate, but it would also grow in sin and rebellion as it populated. And God's judgment would bring a flood to destroy mankind. Save one family. One family that God spared in His mercy and grace. The family of Noah. God would make a covenant with Noah and all of mankind to never again destroy the world by flood. That He would promise that He would never destroy it again by flood. And that, and that His promise is, is made known through this sign of the rainbow. And so every time that we step outside and that we see, you know, even after this storm that we'll see this, you know, that we could see a rainbow and that that rainbow is a, is reminder of God's amazing grace and his mercy that he showered on mankind by not completely destroying us all. And, and so even after this, it wasn't long again before mankind once a group, they, they grew again in population but also in rebellion and sin. 
at that time, God takes a man named Abram and He gives him these promises. God promises to make Abram this great nation. Israel. And He promises him a a land flowing with milk and honey. More descendants. He promised him more descendants than the stars that he could count in the sky. And he also promised him that he would use his family, this, this nation of Israel, to bless the nations through Abram's family. He also changes Abram's name to Abraham, the father of a multitude. And it doesn't look too good for this nation, though, not too long after. As we're going to see, this nation is going to become slaves of a foreign land, nation of Egypt. But God hasn't forgotten His people and He hasn't forgotten His promises. He hears His people cry out to Him. And He, as the Scripture says, He remembers His promise. So He raises up this deliverer named Moses. And through Moses, God not only delivers this nation, this Jewish nation from slavery, but He leads them through the wilderness, through all those wilderness years, and eventually to the promised land. He will make Israel into this great nation, and He will be their God and they will be His people. He gives the Mosaic Law to the people and renews this great covenant that He had made with Abraham by promising His people great blessings if they obey, but cursings if they do not. The nation is going to rise and then fall fell at the hands of their enemies because of their own disobedience to God who is supposed to be their one and only King. The King of the universe. But yet Israel wanted an earthly King. That's what they they begged for is this earthly King. And God gave them kings. One of these kings would be what God called a man after God's own heart. Not a perfect man in the least, but one that loved God and wanted to please Him. God promised to give David an eternal kingdom through his descendants. This Davidic covenant. And it would be through this Davidic lineage that we would get the Messiah. That the Messiah would come. Christ Jesus would be born. Israel, God's chosen people, So blessed, but yet the laws given and the laws broken. The tabernacle and the temple built and forsaken. The sacrifices made and then abandoned. The prophets ignored and then silenced. The nation sent away into exile. What what hope was there? What hope was there for this nation? This, the prophets, the, excuse me, thou at the hands of a cruel Roman reign of terror. That's where they would be after uh, about 400 years of silence from the prophets. Now they find themselves at the mercy of the Romans. Just, um, just a hope in some ancient prophecies of a coming king that was supposed to bring peace and prosperity and a kingdom that was supposed to be greater than David's kingdom. The hope was to see the end of the Roman rule for these Jewish people, this Jewish nation. 
For the nation to be restored and to be healed. For prosperity beyond anything that they could imagine. That's what their hope was. But why Israel? This nation that, you know, when I think about, you know, they, they struggled. You know, imagine it. People that knew who God was, had seen God's great acts, and was given the truth, but yet they struggled. That they went, they struggled with disobedience, they struggled with faith, they struggled with chasing after other gods. They struggled. But it probably isn't hard to imagine if you're, if you're like I am, because that struggle is so much within myself. Uh, a struggle with doubt, a struggle with fear, a struggle with sin, a struggle with idolatry, chasing after things that are not God. That is, that is my story. So when I read through the Old Testament and I see these stories of these imperfect people who, who have been shown the truth and yet they still struggle, I see myself. What is special about this nation that God, you know, that leads God to make such wonderful promises to its people? You know, that He would make them His people. Basically, the reason is that the Lord has put His own reputation on the line. That He has put His own honor on the line. That, that He has chosen this nation to be His people. And it says this, So He says, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for My holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel 36, 22 and 23. And so it's not because of us, it's actually in spite of us that, that, that we are... Constant, or that this, in, in this instance, the, na- the nation of Israel chosen by God to be His people, but yet constantly rejecting the very God that saw them through, that took them out of slavery, that made them His people. And they constantly go and chase after other gods. And as a result, He turns them over. He turns them over to their enemies. He chastens His people. God makes it clear that he did not set his love on Israel because it was inherently better or larger than other nations for the Israelites. Because he calls them, they were the least of all peoples. And doesn't he do that so much in Scripture? I think about Gideon, the least of the least, and, and David. You know how he takes these that, that would seem so insignificant And that's who He chooses. And He chose this nation Israel. Why Jacob? Why not Esau? But He sets His love on them because He sovereignly chose to love them. Deuteronomy 7-8. Through the Abrahamic covenant, God identified uh, Israel as a people for Himself. A special treasure. His special possession above all the people on the face of the earth that He's He's chosen to use this people from the lineage of Abram, this promise that he gives Abram, this covenant that he gives Abram. And he says, I'm going to show the world who I am through this people. 
and that he's going to bless all the nations of the world through this people. So he sets them apart. And, and so through all the, the cleansings and through all the ceremonies and all the holy days and through all the sacrifices, through the circumcision that he is setting them apart, that these are a special people, that they, through all the miracles, that all the victories, that God has taken this small, seemingly insignificant people, an insignificant nation, and He is going to raise them up to do miraculous wonders that the world around them cannot deny. That the world looks and says, we cannot deny that there is something different about this people. Who is this God that they serve? So what was this new covenant? Because according to the old covenant that God established with the people of Israel, they were required to strictly obey the Mosaic law and even to perform daily sacrifices to atone for their sins. But Moses would give an interesting last address in Deuteronomy to his people, to the nation of Israel. When he speaks of a time in the future where he calls it, that God will give His people a heart to understand. Deuteronomy 29.4 A heart to understand. So, so He's saying that to, to give them a heart to understand that we would assume right here that, that they did not have a heart to understand before. That there was something wrong with their heart. At that time Moses says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. And your hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. So here again, we see something that's, that's strange, a strange terminology where we see God talk about the circumcision of the heart, the cutting of the heart. We see heart surgery that God is actually saying that there is something wrong with your heart. And so I've got to go in and do something to your heart. I've got to cut your heart. It reminds me of the language uh, in Acts um, after the, the sermon by Peter where the men were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. And he says that after I do this heart surgery on my people that they will love me. And that they will love me with all their heart, with all their soul. And because of that, that they will live. But in order, to, in order for them to live and in order for them to love Him with all their heart, that means that there's something wrong with their heart before and that they need heart surgery. This isn't the only time in the Old Testament where language like this of a new heart and a new covenant is used. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of the new covenant. He says this, The day will come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. He's doing it. This is something he's, he's going to put the law that he has made, the goodness that he has made in their minds. And he says, I will write them this law on their hearts. Again. We assume that there must be something wrong with our hearts in the first place for him to say that he's got to do something to it, that there's got to be something spiritually done to it that is seemingly that we cannot do on our own, that God has to interact, that he has to 
flood our soul and flood our heart and that He's got to do something very unique. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Jeremiah 31, 31 and, and verse 33. The new covenant is also mentioned in Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, where he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you uh, your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. And so this, I mean, to be honest, this really stirs me up because, because I think about, again, something wrong and God's got to, He's got to act. That he's, he's, He could just... He could just go the way of condemnation, right? Just let them go on their own. On their own, they have a heart of stone. And this is so familiar to me because I can remember so much of my life growing up in rebellion to truth. In rebellion to truth that there were things about the gospel that I rejected. There were things that that I didn't want to believe because it conflicted with the way that I with the way that I viewed life and the way that I lived my life and so when I would sit under preaching or I would hear the word of God or I would read the word of God and all this condemnation would fall on me when my life did not look like the truth that was being presented before me that there's only two options right there's only two options that you either have to submit to truth, that your heart has to be broken, that the pride has to be stripped away, and you have to admit that you're wrong, or that you've got to reject it, that you've got to convince yourself that you're right and that the truth set before you is wrong. And so many times with a hard heart, a heart of stone, that I convinced myself that I was right. That I ignored the truth. I sat under preaching for years and ignored the truth. And I had a heart of stone. And God had, he had to take the heart of stone out. And as he puts it here, he had to, he had to give me a heart of flesh. He had to give me a new heart and a new spirit. So that I might love Him and want to obey Him and want to believe Him. So that now when there's a conflict between my opinion and the Word of God, that my opinion has to submit. That, that I have to submit to God's Word. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant are definitely two different things. But yet there is some change and some continuity between the two. While the Old Covenant could only condemn and it was temporary and was to be replaced, the New Covenant provides righteousness for us. It is permanent and it offers life. The letter, it says, kills, but the Spirit gives life. 2 Corinthians 3.6 The Old Covenant was veiled. It was cloudy. It's why, it's why so many, when Jesus comes on the scene, that even those closest to Jesus, they, they weren't even sure exactly how this was going to go down. They were expecting a Messiah that would overthrow Roman rule, that would build this kingdom here on earth, 
an earthly kingdom that would prosper. And they did not see the truth of the gospel completely. It was veiled. It was cloudy. It says it was cloudy with Paul until, until God had to move on Paul and remove the scales that he might see. He has to do the same with us. He has to do the same with us. It's something, it's a mystery that has been unveiled in the life of Jesus Christ. And it must be, the veil must be removed from each of us so that we might see. And we can't be so arrogant to think that this is something that we can do on our own. It must be something that God has to do, that we, we have to beg for God's grace and His mercy to give us eyes that we might see. In Hebrews 8.13, it says this about Christ. He makes the first law obsolete. We're no longer under the law, but now under grace. Romans 6, 14 and 15. The old covenant has served its purpose and has been replaced by a better covenant. Hebrews 7, 22. In fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he's the mediator. He is the mediator. He's superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises that it is eternal and that the sacrifice is a once and for all payment for our sins. There's there's no more need for bull and goats. There's no more need. He is the high priest. There's no more need for the temple because now that the Holy Spirit can dwell in men. There's no more need. It is a better covenant. It is a better promise. Another way to explain the continuity between the old and the new covenant is to apply the illustration that Paul uses from Galatians 3, 24 and 25. Paul writes it this way. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. It's our guardian to show us the way, to show us the truth, to to show us that we were wrong, to show us what holiness is. This is what goodness is. You cannot keep it. You want to know what goodness is? You can't just make it up as you go because if you can make up what you believe goodness is, then then you can attain that, right? Then I can attain goodness. But but if if goodness is based on, on who God is and His law, then we will see very quickly that we don't match up. Right? It doesn't take me long to read the Bible, to, to, to read the Bible now, a few minutes and maybe a few moments, and, and I already am confronted with sin. I'm confronted with mistakes. I'm confronted with problems in my life. I'm confronted with flaws. It doesn't take long to see that I don't match up to His holiness. That if I thought I was good, I realized that I missed the mark. The guardian in the Greek, it was a slave whose job it was to conduct a young boy to and from school and to supervise his conduct. The guardian was to go with and follow and, and check on to see that these young men were properly behaving. When the boy grew up, the guardian was no longer needed. This analogy can help us understand better the elements between the continuity 
uh, between these covenants. Is that is it what Paul is saying is that the guardian is no longer needed now uh, because now we have a better covenant. So how has this New Testament been fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Through this study, I found over 350 prophecies in the Old Testament that were filled through Jesus Christ. And I read a lot of them. And I won't be going through all of them so you can breathe. But I do want to share several of those with you that really stood out to me. And I'm, gonna, I'm going to paraphrase. In Genesis, Christ is seen in creation. Let us make man in our image. He is also prophesied to come from the seed of a woman and to crush the servant, the serpent, the devil. He is to be the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and come from the line of Judah. He is the substitutionary atonement in the story of Abraham and Isaac. And He is to come out of Egypt. That's all in Genesis. In Exodus, He's the great I Am. He is the Passover Lamb. He is the firstborn Son and He will be exalted. He is the spiritual rock of Israel and the great Deliverer, the greater Moses. In Leviticus, it's His blood that offers true atonement. He's also the drink offering that quenches our thirst. In Deuteronomy, John the Baptist we see later would be the forerunner, but we see a forerunner here that tells the people of the coming Messiah. And we see the curse of a man hanging on a tree in Deuteronomy. In Ruth, we see the great kinsman redeemer. In 1st and 2nd Samuel, we see an eternal king from the lineage of David. In 2 Kings, we see a bodily ascension to heaven. In Job, we see the resurrection predicted. In Psalms, He is everywhere. He's the Holy One. He's the anointed King. He's the beloved Son who sits at the right hand of God. It, it speaks in Psalms of His humiliation and His exaltation. That He will not see corruption. And He will rise from the dead. His death is described in Psalm 22 where he suffers and he thirsts and his hands and feet are pierced, stripped, and his garments gambled away. He is accused of false witnesses and he does the will of the Father to please the Father. He is the rejected stone who is given vinegar and thirst and he prays for his enemies. In Isaiah, it is full of Christ. As I read through so many of these the last couple of days, I just could not get away from this fact that Jesus Christ quoted these scriptures. He quoted Zechariah and he quoted, he quoted Isaiah so many times. And in Isaiah, that the, the Jews, they knew that that Isaiah was talking about the Messiah and they knew that, that in so many places in the Psalms and Isaiah and Zechariah that those places were viewed as it was talking about God, the one God, the sovereign God. And yet Jesus quotes those very verses time and time again. So listen, I'm going to tell you something. He is either God the Son. He is either God or He is a blasphemous a blasphemous, blasphemous person. 
people. He is God the Son. In Isaiah 6, it tells that His words will be rejected. In chapter 7, it says He's Emmanuel, God with us. That He's born from a virgin. In chapter 9, He is called the Everlasting Father. The Mighty God, the Prince of Peace, who was sent from Galilee to the Gentiles. In chapter 11, He is Adonai, Lord, from the rod of Jesse. Later in Isaiah, He's the cornerstone who healed the blind. The deaf, the lame, and the mute. He is the shepherd. And He is God's servant who will have compassion on the poor and the needy. He would come to proclaim good tidings of peace and good news. He is the judge, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. He comes for all people. He would be despised and rejected by men. His face beaten. He spit upon in Isaiah. He would bear the sins of the world and provide peace between man and God. He is the sacrificial lamb who would be oppressed and would be afflicted, would be killed, and would be buried in a rich man's grave. He was innocent of the charges against him. He would be resurrected and he would live forever in Isaiah. And the elect, it says, shall inherit a new heaven and a new earth. In Jeremiah, the Messiah would be born a king from the seed of David. He would be both man and God. He would be the new covenant. In Ezekiel, He is the great shepherd who seeks the lost and the sick and the broken and the shepherd that feeds the sheep. In Daniel, He is the exalted King who ascends to heaven. In Micah, He is the preeminent Messiah from Bethlehem. In Zechariah, He is the Messiah who comes to Jerusalem riding on a donkey, who ministers to the poor, is rejected in favor of another, is betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. He would call Himself equal to God. His body pierced in a violent death. He would be mourned and Israel would be scattered as a result of rejecting Him. And in Malachi, He is the messenger of a new and better covenant. Ezekiel would list several aspects of the new covenant that we would receive a new heart, a new spirit, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and that we would receive true holiness, not just outward but inward, a cleansing, a baptism by fire. The Mosaic law could provide none of these things according to Romans 3.20. Under the new covenant, we are given the opportunity to receive salvation as a free gift that no man can boast. Ephesians 2.8 and verse 9. And Jesus at the Last Supper, as He takes the cup, He says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We cannot preach a bloodless gospel. We cannot. You see, where the old and new covenants meet is found in Christ Jesus. The old covenant as a guardian prepares the way for Him and prepares His people for him, the people of God were viewed as Israelites 
But now, according to Galatians 3, they are people who have faith. They are followers of Christ. Christians. Little Christ. They are His people. The temple used to be defined as a specific place. A specific place of, of, of worship. A building. A brick and stone. But now it's defined as His church. His bride. Our bodies where the Holy Spirit resides. The fulfillment of the law recognized not by the sacrificial system anymore, but rather by the once and for all atonement for our sins, the sacrifice, the crucifixion, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ Jesus. The moral law, however, that which was established, it set eternal standards of righteousness. That moral law still exists. It's unchanged. It still shows us. It still points to Christ. It still shows us that we're incomplete and we are insufficient on our own. That we fail. But although now it is written on the hearts of God's people rather than on tablets of stone. And through His Holy Spirit now that we can please God through faith. We can live a life pleasing of faith that we have a mediator in heaven that's already paid the price. The righteousness that must be imputed. The righteousness that we are pursuing is a righteousness that cannot be obtained through all the work, toil, sweat, and tears that we pour into it. We have, as Americans, uh, been always told that we can make anything of ourselves through hard work, haven't we? That the sky's the limit. But yet here we are. And we learn that the most important possession that we can obtain in this lifetime is absolutely out of reach of our talents and our abilities and our true grit. We're at the mercy of a 2,000 year old story of a man that came and did it for us. He worked for us. He served us. He bled for us. He died for us. And he overcame the grave for us. He followed the law to its letter so that we can obtain the righteousness that he earned and we now get to enjoy. He is the hope for the world. He is the new covenant. He has made the old obsolete so that we might have life and have it more abundant. Let us pray. God, my Father, we thank you, Lord. You have done what man cannot do. What man does not deserve. For none of us deserve it. And none of us can boast in it, Father. We can only boast in you and what you have done. God, you have made this covenant. You, before time began, you put this plan in motion. A plan of redemption of a people that you knew that would forsake you. But you would not forsake. You would not forsake them. You would not forsake yourself. God, we are thankful. We are thankful on this uh, Easter, Easter day, this, this resurrection day where we get to come and celebrate. But God, I pray, Lord, that our celebration would not stop. That our celebration would continue throughout, throughout this week, throughout this year, throughout our lifetimes, Father. That we would trust in you and that we would honor you, not just with our lips, Father, but with our lives. 
that we would understand that we are the temple, that your Holy Spirit resides in us, Father. But if there are any out there right now, Father, who do not know you, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would invade their life, Father, that you would perform heart surgery on them, that you would give them a new heart and a new spirit, that you would break the pride, show them, Father, that they need you, Father. God, that, that you would... God, I pray, Lord, that they would cry out to you, Father, that they would cry out right now that you would save their soul. God, we love you and we thank you. It's all in Christ's name we pray. Amen.